Thinking aloud. Conversations on the leading edge of knowledge and discovery with psychologist Jeffrey Mishlove. Hello and welcome. I'm Jeffrey Mishlove. Our topic today is cultivating extrasensory perception. With me is Dr. Charles Tart, who was a faculty member on my dissertation committee at the University of California when I wrote Psi Development Systems, which was based on my doctoral dissertation. Dr. Tart has been in the field of parapsychology for over six decades. He is the author of numerous books in the field, including the classic anthology, Altered States of Consciousness, as well as Learning to Use ESP and Psi, Scientific Studies in the Psychic Realm. Also, The End of Materialism and Waking Up. Welcome, Charlie. Welcome, Jeffrey. I'm getting tired hearing all those titles. <laughs> and I haven't mentioned them all, I know. <laughs> no, you've had an illustrious career, and, and uh, in a way it's like threading the needle, I, I think, to be able to maintain an, an academic position all these decades at the same time that you're researching taboo topics and, and doing it very mm -hmm. rigorously. And in your book, Learning to Use ESP, you specifically focus on the important question of feedback as a learning tool. Mm -hmm. So let, let's start there. And, uh, well, suppose I say, Jeffrey, I want you to hold your hand out, palm flat. Mm -hmm. you, can, you can do this. Yeah. And while contracting your index finger, like I'm doing, mm -hmm. I want you to start turning your hand back and forth 180 degrees, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. Okay. Now put that down and read my mind. <laughs> then I, I ask you to do a small variation on a talent you're already exquisitely skilled at, controlling the movements of your hand. Mm -hmm. We have somebody come in for an experiment and they say, you know, somebody's thinking of something in another room, read their mind or read the order of this deck of cards in a sealed box. It's amazing that it works. And I think an intelligent response to that request should be something like, huh? Yeah. Do what? How am I supposed to do that? Yeah. Mm -hmm. should, should I squint? Should I relax? Should I pray? Uh, it's not something you already know how to do. A very few people already have some controllable ESP skill. Mm -hmm. But, but when you're working people, with college students, uh, typically they're not experienced. That's right. Very unexperienced, and certainly yeah. not in ESP. Yeah. So almost all the tests of ESP that have been done have been based on a model that somebody already has a certain level of ESP, and you just tell them to use it in your test. And then you do things like seeing whether giving them a stimulant, like caffeine helps or doesn't help mm -hmm. and whatnot. But they don't know how to use ESP to right. begin with. Yeah. Well, how do you learn something new? You try something 
and you see whether it succeeds or fails, right? Right. And typically, if, that's if, how it's done. If I'm th if I think I'm going to touch the tip of my ear and I do that, I realize it doesn't feel very eerie up there. <laughs> you get yeah. immediate feedback, and you know, okay, no more grand gestures mm -hmm. like that. That's not really going to help. Mm -hmm. So this occurred to me as as a very basic principle of learning anything which had never been applied in ESP research. Well, and, and I suppose that especially yeah, it's the case that that work that you did occurred in the era when biofeedback was coming to the forefront and there were some very significant studies that people can learn how to control their heartbeat and their brain waves because of feedback. That, uh, that was a new finding back yeah. in the 1960s. Yeah, that was happening at the same time, and I, I, I saw the parallel there. If you give people feedback about something that normally they don't know what they're doing, there's a good chance they can learn control over it. Mm -hmm. So I said to myself, okay, you have to assume that a person has some potential ESP ability. I mean, you know, you, yeah. you can't train deaf people to hear better if they're completely deaf to begin with. There's mm -hmm. got to be a little talent there. But if you put them in a learning situation instead of a testing situation, maybe they can learn it. What was even worse, if they don't know how to do something, and you have them do it over and over again, like guessing through a whole deck of cards and then another deck, this is what in psychology is known as an extinction paradigm. Mm -hmm. You can take any skill a person actually has, and by making them do it over and over without feedback, they'll get worse and worse at it and gradually lose their skill altogether. Mm -hmm. Well, one of the most solid, repeatable findings in parapsychology was as you keep making people do these ESP tests with no feedback over and over, they get worse and worse and end up a chance. It's known as the decline effect. Yeah. And right. it's often argued by skeptics that, that the decline effect proves there was never anything there to begin with. Yeah, it's it's a silly argument though because you know chance doesn't get tired. Ch mm. Chance runs along at the same variable level mm -hmm. all the time. So it's interesting as evidence that ESP exists that when people do it they get tired and and lose their talent. It's interesting in saying something about the possible psychology of how it's done. But if your goal is to get ESP to happen regularly and reliably in the laboratory, it's a killer. Mm -hmm. So I published this as a theory. Yeah, uh, it was not widely received with great acclaim because you know one way of reading it is, hey, you folks who have sacrificed so much to do tests on this thing, in spite of your career drawbacks, have been killing off the very phenomena you want to study. You'd think that would be useful information. <laughs> it is useful information, <laughs> but it is not egocentric, as we uh, say. It, it, not yeah. welcome. It. <laughs> I don't like it when people point out that I'm stupid. Yeah. I try to remember that after I get over not liking it, mm -hmm. I should see if there's some truth there. Can I improve what I'm doing? Well, I do recall that it, it created a controversy in the field. Yeah. So, having published it as a theory, mm -hmm. I said, okay, theory is nice. Love it when it stuff makes sense. But you've got to actually have some data that mm -hmm. supports the particular stuff. So... I first did some rough and crude pilot studies, and I did them in a very interesting way. I was teaching an upper-level undergraduate course on experimental psychology, 
And there are exercises you can run people through on how to do experiments. But I said, no, let's, let's do this like an apprenticeship situation where you're doing a real experiment that will actually teach us something and you're doing it with somebody who's supposedly expert on it. As the instructor, I'm defined as expert. <laughs> Some truth in that. Mm-hmm. And that made it much more interesting. Mm-hmm. So after the first real rough and ready one, we did it in a much more formal way. Mm-hmm. Okay, first we needed people who had some talent in ESP to begin with. You had to pre-screen them. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I had my students, uh, roughly 20 students in the class, divide up into teams of two or three people. And they would go and beg other instructors to have the last 10 minutes of one of their class to do a mass ESP test with mm-hmm. the students in their class, mm-hmm. you know, which could vary from anywhere from 15 or 20 students to several hundred students that pass out a response form, and they do a little quick card-guessing thing up front. Well, that's amazing that you didn't lose your tenure right then and there. <laughs> it's hard to get tenure, but it's harder to lose it, fortunately. <laughs> Some people would have done it if they could have, but that's another... I'm, but you, now you're involving the whole psychology department in your research. Well, no, actually, most of these were non-psychology classes. Oh, they they okay. could go to any classes that they knew yeah. the instructor Yeah, because of. traditionally, psychologists are the most hostile. Yes. And I'll tell you an interesting fact I found. J.B. Ryan became famous for his ESP research. He yes. was very widely known to the general public. Mm-hmm. And he got a job at Duke University. And as far as psychology and parapsychology went, I think he put Duke on the map. You mm-hmm. know? It, it was a good school, but it was relatively unknown before yeah. that. You know, And then this famous ESP researcher. He became there. virtually the most famous professor yes. at Duke. Yes. And, and you were there. Yes. And, but then what happened was that the other psychology department professors would be going off to conferences and all that. And when people found out they were from Duke, they said, oh, do you work with J.B. Ryan? Mm-hmm. And they hated it because they thought this ESP stuff was absolutely nuts. Yeah. The interesting fact I learned was that someone was recently writing a secretary in the psychology department for doing a historical survey asked, do you ever get any letters from J- for J.B. Ryan anymore, even though he's been dead for many years? And they said, they get more letters from J.B. Ryan than for all the rest of the psychology faculty <laughs> put together. Still there every year. <laughs> so, you know, his, his host is still making the psychologist embarrassed. Yeah. Psychologists are super defensive about ESP. Mm-hmm. As one of my graduate school professors used to say, you know, it was only a hundred years ago they let us out of the philosophy department, and some of them would like to put us back and say we're just mm-hmm. talking empty words, you know, so we want to be real scientists. And yeah, compared to physicists, they're at the bottom of the yeah. pecking order of scientists. Exactly, yeah. yeah. So there are a few, maybe economists are down there even worse. (laughs) (laughs) So there was a lot of resistance to doing this kind of thing, yeah. But you were able to get other professors, not psychologists, to uh, help out with this study. Yeah, and you know, who knows how selective that was. Maybe it was professors who were bored teaching the same class over and over again. They'd love to have somebody take mm-hmm. the last 10 minutes. Anyway, they screened roughly 2,000 students this way. Mm-hmm. And we said any st- individual student who made a very high score on this, we would consider possibly talented. Possibly, because when you test so many students, some are going to score high by chance alone. Mm-hmm. You know, if you take odds of 1 in 20 
as significant, then one out of 20 students is going to be, look significant by accident. A couple of thousand students, you've got dozens and dozens of people who aren't really talented. But that's all right. We'll mm -hmm. take the ones who seem to be talented and bring them in for an individual test session on mm -hmm. either of two machines where there's no problem with sensory leakage. And by chance alone, the odds of someone scoring significantly if they have no ESP on two consecutive tests are very low. So anybody mm -hmm. who continued to score high in this, we said they've got potential talent. Mm -hmm. Let's put them in the training study where we're now going to give them feedback to see if they can and learn. I, I should say that when you talk about machines for for testing, this is in the, you were a pioneer in the era of of using automated uh, machines for ESP testing. And yeah, I didn't start it, but I was one of the few active in those early days. Yeah. And and being uh, with your background in electronics, you designed the equipment, as I recall. Yeah, I like machines. Mm -hmm. uh, <laughs> and, but the point is, that I want to make is this is what's known as a forced choice test. Right. This is not remote viewing. No. no. People are told you, you, in your case, it was a 10-choice trainer, as well, I recall. Well, there were two machines, actually. Uh -huh. One machine was a four-choice trainer, yeah. you know. A ready light would come on, meaning somebody in the other room was trying to telepathically send, whether it was one, two, three, or four, and you had to push a button that would indicate your guess. And if you got it right, a bell would ring. Ding! Mm -hmm. It was a very nice bell. Okay. Yeah. So people got immediate feedback. And if you were wrong, the the correct thing lit up, but that wasn't the one you pushed. Yeah. The other machine was a 10-choice trainer. So it's much harder to score well by chance. Mm -hmm. But again, if you got it right, a bell rang. Mm -hmm. Five of the People who, oh, we then let people choose whether they want to continue the experiment on the 10 choice machine or the 4 choice machine. Mm -hmm. The 10 choice machine was the most exciting because it's, it's hard to get a good score by chance. Yeah. Uh, we had five people who individually scored quite significantly, some of them with odds of millions to one against chance. Mm -hmm. None of them showed a decline effect, even though declines were considered common. So at the very least, by giving immediate feedback, we weren't extinguishing people. We weren't confusing them. Yeah. Okay. If now they usually heard the bell ring when they felt a cool certainty, they could keep exploring the cool certainty thing rather than the tensed forehead or whatever. Mm -hmm. Now, you're, what you're talking about here is physiological cues that might be associated with correct uh, ESP scores. I use two physiological cues as an example, but it could be psychological ones too. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, shifting over to looking at what goes on inside, you don't know whether the idea you have that it's number seven is ESP or not, but what else is happening? Do you yeah. feel especially relaxed? Do you feel sure? Do you hear a buzzing in your head? But you can start sorting out when mm -hmm. certain kind of experiences happen, I'm more likely to be right. When certain other kinds of experiences happen, I'm almost always wrong. When they happen, I should not make a response. I should sit back and relax. Mm -hmm. Or they could actually press a button to have that whole trial skip. So, so the idea like that. Is, is that people will learn when to be confident and when not to be confident. That's right. Mm -hmm. That's right. So the results were very significant for ESP manifesting. We had no decline. It looked like they were starting to learn, but it really wasn't going on long enough to give really good learning opportunities. Uh -huh. But it was a great start.
Then one of the most interesting things that happened is we had a young woman come in who had done pretty well, and she was not only doing well on the 10-choice machine, say, instead of averaging 20% instead of 10% or something like that, some of her runs, she was hitting 30 40 50%. Mm. She did that a few times, and she started crying and would not go on with the experiment. Oh. Because before, if you're hitting a little bit above chance, well, this authority figure, the professor says, this is statistically significant. Yeah, yeah but you don't know. When you're hitting 40, 50% on something that hard, you're at kind of the gut level of conviction. You know something's going on. And she was having to face up to the fact that she was being psychic. And that's frightening sometimes. Yeah, yeah. I heard from her many years later. She'd become a doctor. Mm -hmm. uh, that was interesting. Yeah. <laughs> we, we had some others who got very good, too, not in hitting the correct one, but in pushing the button immediately to other side mm -hmm. on the 10-choice machine. Mm -hmm. And when they learned that we were scoring for that, too, they started hitting further and further away from the correct target because hmm. there can be resistance to becoming psychic. Yeah. You know, it's not that long in human history that we burned people at the stake that we thought were psychic. A few yeah. hundred years. Yeah. That's right. And, you know, in some cultures, it's been a lot less time that it, we in fact, killed I, witches. In fact, I imagine yeah. if you scour the news reports, you would see that even today it yeah. happens we occasionally. Do. Right. So there's a whole level of fear of psychic abilities. Mm -hmm. Now, you know, we were trying to avoid that in this experiment. That's been a great interest of mine, okay? Mm -hmm. For instance, in my main research project all my life has been my mind. Mm -hmm. Why do I do the things I do? Why, why do I tend to point to my head when I talk about my mind? How thoroughly have I been brainwashed to think that the brain is the seat of the mind? Yeah. So I noticed, for instance, that in some ways I was kind of scared of psychic abilities. And if that was the case but I denied it, then that could be a subconscious force that could affect what I'm doing. Mm -hmm. So when I admitted it to myself, I think it's less of a problem. I can't prove that, but most parapsychologists will not admit to having any kind of fear of psi. Mm-hmm which is one of the difficult problems. Anyway, this woman dropped out of the experiment because she'd passed that gut-level threshold yeah. that the real stuff is happening here. Mm -hmm. I hope she became a good doctor. I mean, you know, I think a good doctor sometimes does a kind of psychic diagnosis, but if she, well, maybe she does it without thinking it's that. <laughs> but I assume if people are going to look back at your career as a parapsychologist, one of the hallmarks of that career will be that you established, minimally speaking, that feedback can prevent the decline effect. Yes, but then a strange thing happened. Mm -hmm. uh, I thought that immediately people would start adopting immediate feedback and make using learning paradigms. Yeah. Hardly any parapsychologist did, only a few, and when they did, they ignored the fact that was clearly stated in the initial theory about it that you need people with some talent to begin with if you're going to train it. Mm -hmm. So they used unselected people who didn't show any talent to begin with and feedback didn't make any work. That's a perfectly correct prediction from the theory, but it's trivial. Mm -hmm. 
So again, I, I think resistance was coming along here. Also, remote viewing came along at this yes. time, which was a much sexier experimental procedure. So I got diverted into that. Remote but viewing or, or free response ESP, yeah. where people can just report on their mental imagery yeah. and then independent judges yeah. match that imagery against potential targets. Right. Good, quick explanation. Mm -hmm. But that, that says something interesting about the psychology of this also. If the target you're trying to guess is a number, say a 1, 2, 3, or 4, or a number between 1 and 10, mm -hmm. part of you is going to try to game it. Yeah. Okay, so for instance, the reason ESP tests were done with cards with no feedback till it was all over was otherwise you'd use card counting, right? Oh, all the stars have been used up, so I don't call stars anymore and I'll get a higher score. Sure. But it just shows that I have some functioning memory. Yeah. But, and also, I would think with the ESP trainers that you have, the experiment is really kinesthetic. You have to reach out with your hand and push yeah. a button. That was another interesting part of it, too. This 10-choice trainer, imagine a circle of lights with a switch beside each one about this big in diameter. Yeah. Signal light comes on in the middle that says somebody's sending one. We discovered, and eventually we put a TV camera in to watch this, that people would sort of douse around. Uh -huh. And what was even more interesting, and oh, I wish we had videotapes of this, but we didn't have the equipment, was so often the signal light would come on that somebody was sending, and the person's hand would immediately go and hover over the correct target and then it would move away and push the wrong button. <laughs> and I could think, damn it, I need an electrical shock button for uh -huh. that. Their hand knew it. You know, it uh -huh. didn't make it through to their conscious response processes, but they knew yeah. it. Because the mind is always kind of working logically, yeah. To, uh, yeah. which interferes with ESP. Yeah. And in fact, I then did further analysis to show that the more someone's styles of responding was sort of logical, like they were playing odds and things like that, the worst they did on ESP. Mm -hmm. You really need to bring a completely open mind, forget what's gone on before. That's totally irrelevant. It's going to distract you. Mm -hmm. Be open to it. And people who do that mm -hmm. got higher scores on it. Mm -hmm. So it was very interesting stuff about the psychology mm -hmm. of science. I think people can learn to use ESP better. Whether everybody can, I don't know. Well, after you did this study, as I recall, or around the same time, you uh, were hired to work at uh, SRI, Stanford Research mm -hmm. Institute, where they were developing the first uh, remote viewing studies. Mm -hmm. You're a co-author of uh, one of one of the important anthologies on uh, remote viewing. Now, how much do you want to go into remote viewing? Well, let's just talk about it in terms of the uh, learning paradigm involving feedback. Yeah. Okay. Remote viewing incorporated almost immediate feedback routinely. Mm -hmm. And I don't know whether it was deliberate or not. It might have been partially deliberate because Russell Targ and I had talked about feedback learning a great deal before they began on this. Mm -hmm. But, okay, here you're doing a card guessing test. Guess number one. Now guess number two. And you're getting no feedback. And by the time you're guessing a number 23, you got all sorts of memories of other things sure. that you guessed before. Yeah. So the feedback even when you get the choice has to be trial by trial. Yeah. And mm -hmm. which means you need to have an independent way of generating it each time. So card counting doesn't matter, but that's yeah. easily handled yeah. technically. You can't like give all the feedback right. at the end of 25 trials. Yeah. 
So, okay, let's say you got a hit on number 23 when they finally turn over the deck and you look at it. Was that the one where you felt trembly or was that the one where you felt uptight? Yeah. Uh, gee, there were so many things mm -hmm. in there you don't remember. With the remote viewing thing, the usual procedure was you did your viewing, then they came back and they drove you directly to the target for actual feedback without something like that intervening to confuse mm -hmm. your memory yeah. of what was there. So I think you had an opportunity to say, okay, when I remote view this kind of thing, I'm generally pretty accurate. Mm -hmm. With that kind of thing, I'm usually yeah. pretty off. Let me relax more about that. So yeah, that uh -huh. immediate feedback came in there. And, and they also might spend a whole afternoon on a single trial. Yeah. Whereas with your force choice studies, you're going to go through 20, 30 trials in mm -hmm. less than an hour, I should think. Yeah. Yeah. If you have a model that this is a skill you need to be learned, rushing people through it sounds like a very bad condition to learn anything. Mm -hmm. But giving them the leisure to introspect on what they're doing and what the consequences are, yeah. Mm -hmm. But um, I understand some remote viewers. I interviewed Joe McMonagall, an outstanding remote viewer. He seemed to feel that it didn't matter whether or not he got feedback. Yeah, but Joe was outstanding, right? Mm -hmm. Okay, I mean, there are a few psychics who are good enough at this stuff, even though they're not always right, that in a sense the conditions don't particularly matter. Mm -hmm. You know, like some psychics, they need a kind of supportive environment, yeah. and others love it when there's some pseudo-skeptic there who says, you're a bunch of crap, you're just faking it all. That's the challenge they need to motivate them. Mm -hmm. But that's that's individual stuff different from the usual run of laboratory people. So you're saying overall with regard to remote viewing or free response ESP feedback is still important. Mm-hmm. I have not heard reports of decline effects in remote viewing. So with that feedback they may at least be holding on to whatever level of talent they have initially. Mm -hmm. I don't know if there's been a, a consistent look at whether they learn to gradually get better or not. Mm. Uh, I think the research conditions, especially the ones focusing on operational remote viewing, didn't make it very easy to do that and, kind of and, thing. and as we were discussing before this interview, there's a controversy around yeah. around that particular question. But but your experimental studies on feedback and learning to use ESP is, will stand, or in, in your mind at, at least, stands as, as one of your lasting contributions to the field. It stands in my mind as my lasting contribution and was not followed up or has been forgotten by most of the people in the field. Which is it's why a very I'm, interesting field we're involved yeah. with here. Well, it's such a tiny field, and, and my expectation is that uh, in the future, people will be very grateful to learn about the work that you did. I hope so. Mm -hmm. You know, when you know how to do it, I mean, ordinarily in science, when you figure out how to do something better, colleagues want to come around and see how you do it. Yeah. When lasers were first being developed, for instance, they had such low power, and it was really speculation whether anybody could do anything. Russell Targ learned to build razors that would drill a hole through a brick. Mm -hmm. A lot of people came to see, how's, how's he build them? How's that work? Yeah. Uh, you would think that everybody would have run off to see, how are these remote viewing researchers doing it to get such good results? But 
We're kind of crazy. Yeah. It's, it's and, human and, nature. And there is an International Remote Viewing Association, and there are hundreds of people mm-hmm. now following up, even though research funding uh, ended a long time ago. Well, Charlie Tart, thank you so much for sharing this important work with me. Thank you for an opportunity to talk about it, Jeffrey. I hope it turns out to be useful for somebody. I think it will. And thank you for being with us. The New Thinking Aloud, or In Presence podcast, that you have just heard was originally recorded as a video for the New Thinking Aloud channel on YouTube. Check out the channel by going to newthinkingallowed.com.